Our speaker is Francois Furstenberg, who received his PhD from Johns Hopkins University, where he is now an associate professor of history. His first book, In the Name of the Father, Washington's Legacy, Slavery, and the Making of a Nation, examines the mythology of George Washington in 19th century print culture and its promotion of U.S. nationalism. His second book, When the United States Spoke French, Five Refugees Who Shaped a Nation, seeks to connect the United States to the French Atlantic world in the 18th century Age of Revolutions through the stories of five French emigres who fled the revolution and settled in Philadelphia. Tonight, he'll explore a collection of tracts now housed here at the, at the Boston Athenaeum where anyone would be welcome to see them. It's very easy to make an appointment in the Virchbau Special Collections Reading Room. You could start by calling the general phone number and asking to speak with the reference desk. Please join me in welcoming Francois to the Athenaeum. Uh, well, thank you very much, uh, Lizzie, Lizzie Barker. Um, it's, it's a thrill for me to be here tonight. I, I just want to thank also a few other people, Victoria uh, O'Malley, who helped to um, put this all together, Deborah Vernon, um, and Cindy and John uh, Reed for brokering the, the connection, as, as you just said. Um, and I also uh, want to thank Stanley Cushing, who's here tonight, who's the curator of Rare Books, um, and, and who uh, was a huge help uh, to me, <laughs> huge help to me when I was doing um, the research that I'm going to be talking about tonight. Um, and it's, you know, it's really fun to be able to come back and, and to talk uh, at, a, at a place where I did, um, where I did the research, that, that where I can sort of present um, on the research that I was doing here, um, just upstairs. And I have to say on a, on a slightly personal note, it's, it's fun to be here for, um, for other reasons. I, I actually grew up in Boston uh, when, I was, when I was much younger. My parents moved um, just up the street when I was something like six months old. They lived on, on Beacon Hill. Um, and I used to, I just had a bout of intense nostalgia as I was walking over here. I walked with the Boston Common and I used to play in the, um, in the frog pond there. Um, so it's, it's really a thrill to be here on a whole series of levels. So there's actually um, two titles to this talk that I'm going to give tonight. The first is the official one um, on George Washington's library, uh, which is, much of which is here at the Athenaeum and, and what I've called Transatlantic Dialogues of Slavery and Freedom. Um, and the second, slightly more, uh, slightly less official uh, title is uh, Why Books Still Matter. It's a slightly more um, methodological take, I guess, on the kind of research that I was doing. But as you'll see, um, the ways that I was, uh, that, that I was um, approaching this kind of research really required um, me to, to come and sit in, um, in, a, in a room full of physical books. Um, and, and it was... It was from, um, actually, the attention that I was able to give to those books um, and the insights that I was able to, to, to gain from the physical aspect of those books that, that, um, that allowed me to sort of do, do the research and, and be able to say a few sort of new things about Washington and, and slavery. So actually, the research that I was doing here uh, sort of straddles my first and second books. Um, Lizzie just talked about the first book called In the Name of the Father. Washington's legacy, slavery, and the making of a nation. And what I was really interested there, uh, in there was on the ways that, that Americans understood George Washington's memory in the 19th century and how, in particular, they understood um, his relationship to slavery, Washington as founding father, but also as sort of father in the paternalist language of, of slaveholding, father to, uh, to um, several hundred slaves. And when I was doing the work on, on that book, I used to sort of say that, you know, I really wasn't interested in Washington's life, only, only in his death. Um, and... 
despite that, I, I, you know, I, always, I couldn't help but get interested in ways that Washington understood slavery uh, himself, in ways that, that he thought about slavery and his uh, evolving thinking about slavery uh, over time. And, um, and so I always meant to write something on Washington's views on slavery and Washington's understanding of slavery and how, how he himself understood it rather than how, how people talked about it later. Um, I had a sense that there was, I had a sense of, I would say, sort of general dissatisfaction with the standard accounts of Washington's um, slaveholding, of Washington's uh, views on slavery, his evolving views on slavery. But I couldn't really come up with much that was new or original to say about it, so I just, you know, sort of left it aside. Uh, and then a few years after the book came out, I was, um, I was in my office at the University of Montreal where I used to teach, and, um, and I was, uh, you know, desperately trying to procrastinate for a lecture I was supposed to give. Uh, so I was on the internet, I was, you know, reading blogs and, and uh, checking the New York Times and refreshing to see if there was any new news and nothing was coming up. Um, and, then, uh, and then I started fooling around on various websites that I was looking at. So I went to the Boston Athenaeum website and, and I started sort of browsing in, in the library here. Um, and I knew, you know, I knew that Washington's, the, the better part of Washington's book collection had ended up here um, in, a, in a sort of roundabout way. Uh, but I had never actually looked at the catalog when I was doing the research for the book, actually. Um, uh, you know, it was less, these things were less accessible on the internet. So I started browsing, um, and to my great surprise, I, I learned uh, that he had, um, he had quite a few books on uh, anti-slavery tracts in his, in his collection. Uh, to be specific, he had, he had 17 books on slavery uh, and on the slave trade in, in his book collection. I've listed them all here. Uh, they were by famous abolitionists, people like Anthony Benizet, Granville Sharp, Thomas Clarkson. Speeches uh, in, in the British Parliament by uh, people like William Wilberforce, William Pitt, uh, James, Charles James Fox, along with sermons and speeches by lesser-known abolitionist figures uh, and a wide range of abolitionist figures, British, uh, French, and American. Now, um, having, having written on George Washington, uh, it's hard to, I think, emphasize how vast the scholarship is on Washington. There are <laughs> thousands of books and articles uh, written about this person. And yet, as far as I could tell, no one seemed to have noticed um, these pamphlets in his collection, the existence of these books in his, in his collection. And, you know, I have to say, it's, it's rare in, in my line of work, you know, working on kind of the founding fathers to, to come up with new evidence that, that almost never happens. So, um, so this seemed kind of interesting to me. You know, how, how might these books have, have influenced Washington's thinking? Might there be something new to say about Washington's views on slavery by, by starting with those books? Now, obviously, I could you know, sit at my desk and, and with the internet just download um, virtual copies of the books, which, of course, I, I did, and I, and I read those. Um, but I figured that you know, since, the, since the find was really Washington's library here in the Athenaeum, that maybe I, I ought to you know, come down and look at the books themselves. So, so the next step was fairly obvious. Got in my car, and I, and I drove down to the Boston Athenaeum. As I said, I lived in, in Montreal. So, um, so this really gets, gets now to the sort of second title of, of, of my, my lecture, because in, in certain ways, although the discovery, if you want to think about it that way, happened over the internet, um, it, in certain ways, what I'm talking about tonight is kind of the limits of the internet. It's about why we still need, actually, libraries with um, physical books. And maybe, um, it may even be, you know, I don't know if this is right, but it may even be about how the internet sort of paradoxically makes physical books um, more important than ever. So I came down um, to, to Boston, and I 
came along. Beacon Street, as many of you did, just past the Massachusetts Steakhouse. Uh, this, this Dunkin' Donuts actually used to be a, a drugstore or maybe a bookstore. Memories differ on that. It's where my parents met some 50 years ago. Uh, it was a short-lived marriage, but I like to think it had positive results. <laughs> and in I came to the Boston Athenaeum. Everyone knows, everyone knows this portrait, right? The Athenaeum portrait. Um, now, uh, of, of Washington, which I had written about, actually, and which I was very familiar with. So, you know, I had a little thrill just coming in and, and knowing, even though the painting's not here, that the, the aura of it still remained. Um, now, interestingly, despite the, the huge scholarship on Washington, there, there isn't as much written on Washington's reading as one might expect, given the, given the extent of interest in George Washington. Part of the reason, I think, has to do with the fact that Washington wasn't really known for his um, intellect. He, he was never a reader on par with uh, many of his contemporaries. He didn't, he didn't amass one of the country's great uh, book collections the way Thomas Jefferson did, later became the foundation of the Library of Congress. He didn't furiously annotate his books the way John Adams did. He was, um, in certain respects, he was the most provincial of his peers. Unlike Franklin, Jefferson, or Adams, Washington never traveled to Paris, London, or Amsterdam. He seemed to pine instead for a, a sedentary life on the banks of the Potomac River. Nonetheless, books were an important part of his, um, of his life, as they, as they had to be for anybody aspiring to the Virginia gentry in the 18th century. And by the time he died, he owned uh, nearly 1,000 volumes. And so this is um, one work in, in his collection. And the most significant thing I, I discovered when I came to look at these books uh, was that six of the 17 books that I had identified as, as, um, slavery, as books about slavery or about the slave trade, six of them were bound um, together in a volume uh, called Tracts on Slavery, as you see here. It had Washington's book plate glued uh, on the inside cover. So, you know, this is kind of interesting, I guess, um, but, but what does it really tell us? I mean, what, 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 what can we, how can we understand um, in a new way Washington's views on, on slavery? And I think to, um, to answer that question, it becomes necessary to, to borrow some of the, the tactics that scholars of book history or, or history of reading, history of print use. Um, and those scholars, they tell us that books aren't just um, immaterial objects that convey ideas. They are that, of course. They, this is the way that ideas are transmitted. But they're also material um, objects. They're also things. So, um, so if, we, if we take this materiality seriously, if we, if we think about these books as things, how, how might they better ground our speculation into Washington's understanding of slavery? Well, the first thing we notice is that the book, um, the volume, here is bound in, in tree-calf leather. That's what they call it when it has that sort of tree-like symbol. has a Morocco label, the red Morocco label, and, and what they call double gilt rules along the spine, these, these double lines that you see. Sorry, I got a pointer here. Um, these double lines that you see here, which are actually uh, run with, with uh, gold foil by, by a printer when they made this. And that volume, uh, it turns out, is part of a much larger pamphlet collection uh, of, of bound volumes, of a collection of bound volumes of pamphlets. So the, the volume on slavery is one of no fewer than 36 bound volumes, bound pamphlet volumes that Washington owned. 31 of them are here in the Boston Athenaeum. Five of them are at the Morgan Library in um, the J.P. Morgan Library in New York City, and, and, I, and I had a chance over the course of the research to look at all of them. They all have the same physical appearance. They all have the same labels, the same tree-calf leather, the same seven double-gilt uh, uh, rules. Now, um, you know, this is sort of interesting that Washington had them bound this way, and he did have them bound this way, although we don't have records of the, of the um, printer who bound them together. Um, 
this wasn't the most expensive kind of binding that was available in the 18th century. It's not the highest kind of binding. It's not the kind of thing, I guess, that you know, Donald Trump would have bound his books with, um, an 18th century version of Trump. But this was, um, nonetheless, this was, this was high-end workmanship. Each gilt rule, each of these gold foils, made, the, made the, book, the binding more expensive. And he had, as I said, seven double gilt rules. So it suggests that Washington um, cared a good deal about the pamphlets that he was selecting to have bound in, um, in these volumes. And that, that suspicion um, seems validated when we look at the, um, at, the, at the pamphlets themselves inside these collections. The other volumes all focus on subjects that were, that were close to George Washington's heart. Notable um, topics in the pamphlet collection cover agriculture, which, is, uh, which was probably Washington's most, um, most uh, dearest subject to Washington's heart. He read avidly on agriculture and corresponded avidly on agriculture. He was fascinated by it. Um, other topics on the American Revolution, Society of Cincinnati, and, um, and 10 volumes of, of political tracts, which not surprisingly would have, been, would have comprised the, um, the heart of the, of the collection. And so these were um, obviously intended to form a set. You, know, you can see how they, how they all, um, how they all uh, have the same, the same binding and the same, and the same covers. Um, some of the political tracts are, are really um, uh, major tracts that any historian of the 18th century knows about. Tract, famous works by people like Richard Price or John Dickinson. Um, the volume on, on common sense here is the pamphlet on common sense is one of my favorites from the collection. Um, G Washington signed it, as you can see, he signed it himself um, here at the at the top, and and uh, so that's you know he, this probably would have been probably would have been the the um, the actual copy that he had read to his troops um, in in seventeen seventy five when they were in in New York. Many of them uh, seventeen seventy six, pardon me. Many of them are dedicated uh, or inscribed to George Washington uh, by the author. So so they appear. They appear based on, you know, on these kinds of uh, pieces of traces of evidence. They appear to be um, valuable to him. Gifts from friends, works on subjects that he cared about, wrote his name on. The signatures actually give a really interesting clue um, to, to the ways that the pamphlets were, were um, valued by Washington. The pamphlets, um, in, for, for a binder to have, to have bound these pamphlets together, you know, pamphlets were printed in, on, on different sized paper, um, and they would have had to be cut to, to, to have the same, um, the same shape so that they could be bound together into a volume. Um, and what's interesting about these is, you know, one might speculate, well, did Washington sign the pamphlets after they were bound or before? You know, maybe someone else sort of had them bound together, and then he just signed, put his name on it. Well, what you can see from these things is that from, from the ways they were bound is that uh, the, the, the binder had to cut um, had to cut the already existing inscriptions or signatures to, um, to make them fit into the volume. And you, you see the same with the common sense that I just showed you. Um, they had to cut at the very top where Washington had already signed. So these are, these are, um, these are pamphlets that Washington had signed, which were then later selected to be cut. Um, to be, to be cut. So they were, um, you know, another suggestion here that these, these pamphlets uh, were, were chosen to be bound together in these volumes because they were important to Washington. So, um, so all this is, you know, interesting in, in you know, in, in these kinds of like ways that one can hunt down clues uh, based on books. But it doesn't really address, I guess, the central question, which is, um, what would these works have meant to Washington? How did he, how did he understand these these things that he was reading? You know, after all, you know, I can read a book one way, you can read a book the same book completely differently. I mean, thank God, it's what <laughs> it's what makes uh, scholarship interesting. Um, so, uh, so can we tell how Washington would have uh, would have understood these, 
can, how we, can we tell how Washington would have, um, would have read them? Now, one way that historians use to, to get at a question like that, how did, how did somebody in the 18th century understand what he was reading or she was reading? One way they do that is by, um, by looking at marginalia. I mentioned John Adams a few minutes ago. John Adams is a fantastic marginalia in his book. He scribbles, you know, he, he gets angry with the things that he's reading and he responds to it in, um, in the margins of the books themselves. And they're, and they're fantastic, um, you know, fantastic evidence for getting into, Jordan, into John Adams' mind. Unfortunately, with Washington, we don't have the same kind of evidence. We don't, there's much less uh, internal evidence as people, as people talk about it in the books. He, he, marked, he, he didn't mark his books up very well or very, very, very much. The pamphlet um, on the Society of Cincinnati is one of the few that I was able to find that actually had, these are, apologize for the quality of some of these pictures. This was me just uh, with the kind uh, forbearance of the, of the librarians here, just taking some, some photos of the, um, of this thing. So he did some checks and he did some underlinings here. Uh, or there, let's say there are some checks and there are some underlinings here. It's one of the very rare books uh, that I was able to find that actually did have markings in them. And we can't actually know whether that was Washington. I mean, this isn't even handwriting. These are just checks and underlinings. So, so we have no way of knowing. So, um, so the, the lack of, um, of internal evidence inside the text themselves means, means that we'll have to look elsewhere to understand how Washington would have read these and how he would have interpreted these, um, these books. So you have to kind of build a, let's say, you know, a circumstantial case for what these, these works on slavery might have meant to Washington. So we can go back to the, um, to the slavery book, the, the tracts on slavery, as he called it. You'll note that, that the bound volume has um, six pamphlets. I said that earlier, the six pamphlets on slavery. And if we go back to the list of, of works on slavery that, that um, I had identified in the catalog, there were 17 pamphlets on slavery and abolition and the slave trade. Uh, so what about those other uh, 11 pamphlets? Um, can they tell us anything? Well, they're all here. Um, and uh, they offer really interesting and I think important clues. I mean, if you, if you look at these books, you look at the condition of them right away, um, they were carelessly stored, not by the Athenaeum, I hasten to add, but they were, um, they were, they were probably just sort of put in a trunk or put somewhere um, and left and, and left by, by Washington. They, some of them seem, seem even to have eat, been maybe eaten by rats. It's a little hard to tell. So, you know, so this raises the question, why were uh, some of them bound in marbled leather while others were uh, left in, in, this, um, in this kind of condition? These texts, for instance, seem to have meant much less to George Washington. In fact, one book, Granville Sharp's uh, The Law of Retribution, is still in its original uh, cardboard wrapping, and it remains to this day entirely unopened. In the 18th century, printers would fold paper uh, you know, to, to print multi-sided. And then when you got the book, I'm sure some of you have seen, most of you probably have seen you know, books if you're book lovers, which you are here. Um, you've seen old books that have to be cut open. Um, and uh, this one, amazingly, fantastically, has, was never open. It's never been read by anybody, this book. Uh, so so this, is, um, you know, this is pretty interesting uh, evidence. So the, the contrast, I think, between the bound... Um, pamphlets and the unbound pamphlets uh, offer some, some insight into Washington's thinking about slavery. The Granville Sharp pamphlet, um, the ones that I showed you here, and, and there were several of them, they were delivered to Washington by um, an American named Elkanah Watson. He was an American who was traveling in England who met Sharp. He writes about this in his, in his journal. Um, he met Sharp when, um, when he was in England, and Sharp asked Watson to, to, to deliver them to George Washington knew that Washington was already an important figure. This was after the, revolu this, uh, after the revolution and, um, and, and wanted you know, to influence Washington's thinking. So, so Watson um, 
brought the, the pamphlets back and dutifully delivered them to George Washington. He, he almost certainly did that when he was at Mount Vernon in 1785, in January 1920, 1785. All, that, all that's documented. We know that he came, and that was after his trip. So, so it's almost certain that that was the point at which he gave them to Washington. But we see from the condition, from the fact that they weren't even read, um, that Washington set them aside. He didn't bother with these pamphlets. So it suggests that at this point in 1785, uh, less than two years since the Peace of Paris, since the end of the American Revolution, Washington wasn't yet preoccupied with questions of slavery. By the early, 19, uh, by the early 1790s, on the other hand, Washington seems to have been more interested in the subject. Now, I don't expect, expect you to read everything, but if you, you know, if, you, if you take the time to go through the list of pamphlets on slavery, eight of the 11 unbound pamphlets, the ones that were just left in this kind of careless condition, uh, eight of the 11 were printed before 1788. But um, five of the six bound pamphlets that were in, the bound, uh, in, the, in, the, in that bound volume were printed uh, after 1788. So, you know, I think that's interesting. Most historians actually see the American Revolution as the turning point, the major turning point in Washington's thinking about slavery. He grew up, of course, as a, as a slave owner. Slaves were a part of his life from, from his earliest days in Virginia. And as he rose uh, through the ranks of the Virginia gentry, he uh, accumulated many more slaves, uh, especially with his marriage to, to Martha Custis. Um, he became one of the largest slaveholders in, um, in Virginia and in the country. And, um, you know, and he clearly thought very little about slavery before the revolution. But people, people uh, say, most historians believe, that Washington's uh, real sort of transformation, his grappling with the morality of slavery, occurred during the revolution when he was confronted with these problems and all their, uh, particularly with the, with the question of recruiting uh, uh, African-American soldiers into the, into the revolution, um, and then began to, to, to question more and more the morality of slavery until by the time he, he, he died, he, he emancipated the slaves in his control and his will. Well, um, you know, it appears, at least from, from, from this evidence, that Washington wasn't preoccupied with these questions in 1785 and 1786. It wasn't really until a bit later, until the 1790s, that Washington seems to have, to have um, begun to grapple with this in, a, in, a, uh, in an interesting way or an important way. And then um, the last thing to note about these pamphlets is that four of the six bound pamphlets uh, in the bound volume, those are of foreign authorship. Those aren't written by Americans. Only two of the six are written by Americans. And this, um, and this is what I want to talk about for, for the rest of the evening. This, is what, this um, suggests, I think, the importance of the transatlantic context to Washington's thinking, another way in which historians um, tend not to think about Washington's views on slavery. They understand this really, as I was saying, you know, kind of Washington confronts this problem um, through his own experiences, through his experience in the American Revolution, um, and then he, his, his thinking begins to change. Well, here what we have um, are a set of pamphlets written by British uh, and French anti-slavery um, advocates, and, um, and they suggest the importance of this transatlantic context to Washington's thinking about slavery, to, the, to the, this first wave of abolition more generally in the late 18th century. Um, and even more, um, more interestingly, I think, uh, more broadly, uh, they tell us more beyond what was going on in Washington's heads. They, they, Washington's head, they, they, they can even tell us about how ideas and social movements circulated across the Atlantic world, about how Europeans and Americans um, talked to each other about um, and, and transmitted ideas about um, important movements like the abolitionist movement. And to me, I think it was really one of the most um, important findings of, of the research that I was doing on this, on this volume, um, because we tend to think of the founding fathers in slavery as like the kind of problem of the, of the founders or the problem of slavery. We tend to think of this as an, as an American problem. But really, it was much more than that. It was, a, it was an international problem. 
And, and that is really how, how Washington seems to have thought about it. And so what this volume ultimately, I think, helps us do is to, is to kind of discern the outlines of this, um, of this transatlantic conversation, this transatlantic dialogue that was taking place about slavery and abolition. Now, recent scholarship on, on abolitionism in the late 18th century uh, has emphasized the ways in which slavery became a, a, a problem in the 1780s. This happened uh, during the imperial, in the wake of the imperial crises of the 1770s and the 1780s. Slavery and abolition, to put it very crudely, became a kind of public relations um, problem, became public relations weapons in the arsenal of imperial conflict. They were uh, as much diplomatic issues as they were moral issues. For many people, anti-slavery became a way to add luster to the uh, uh, reputation of the United States in the eyes of enlightened Europe. That is to say, Americans fighting uh, for this, re this Republican revolution were on their way to, uh, to ending slavery. And, and Washington, uh, and, and this was supposed to make the United States appear uh, better. Washington, in particular, uh, was apt to see matters this way. Throughout his career, he, he was persuaded that the, the eyes of the world are turned upon the United States, as he put it in his 1783 um, address, circulated to the States, where he retired um, as general uh, commander-in-chief of the armies. The citizens of America, he said, are from this period to be can be considered as actors on a most conspicuous theater. It's one of my favorite um, passages from, from Washington. Actors on a most conspicuous theater, which seems to be peculiarly designated by providence for the display of human greatness and felicity. This is, um, I think, the, the way that Washington understood what was taking place in the United States, this Republican experiment in which, in which the status of slavery was going to tell us a lot about the future of this Republican experiment and therefore about the future of Republicanism around the world, in Europe as much as in the United States. And so it was in this context, in the, uh, the, the United States standing naked on the world stage, as it were, um, that would determine the future of, of Republicanism itself. It was in this context that in the late 1780s, Washington, like many of his countrymen, uh, returned to the question of slavery. Now, a, a careful reading of the pamphlets in, in Washington's um, bound volume reveals several themes, I think, several themes above all. First was a major concern about the, Amer about the reputation of the United States and about the reputation of those who, who led the country in particular, given, this, given the existence of slavery. There were some very critical remarks on that score in many of the pamphlets. Second was um, a critique of slavery largely as, a, as an inefficient institution, um, less of a moral critique of slavery and more often, a, although that clearly existed in these pamphlets, but, but, but very often a critique of slavery as, as inefficient um, on economic grounds. And third, these pamphlets um, altogether promoted gradual abolition. They didn't, they didn't advocate for an immediate end to, to slavery. They promoted ways of abolishing slavery over time across one or two generations. Um, and what's, what's um, striking about those themes is that they're all characteristic of Washington's views on slavery as well, the writings that we have, and there are, there are quite a few uh, in which he talks about slavery. All three of those are important elements of Washington's thinking about slavery. So what's, what's um, useful, really, about these pamphlets is how they help, help, help us situate Washington's ideas on slavery within a much broader context, within these, these large networks of intellectual exchange. So the, the volume really moves us away from narrow questions about what Washington thought about slavery. They move us towards bigger and, I think, as I say, more interesting questions about the ways that anti-slavery ideas circulated in the late 18th century. Washington emerges um, from, from this volume here and from this, from this reading of, of the work as a participant in a broad transatlantic conversation about slavery. 
Mount, Mount Vernon illuminated one node, as, as people talk about it today, in a vast international circuit of authorship, publication, and readership that stretched across the Atlantic, connecting salons in Paris, debates in London, publishers in Philadelphia, to readers in Virginia. And so uh, with the time I have left, I want to kind of trace out what this international conversation, this international dialogue looked like, how it worked. So I'll, I'll, I'll just give you two quotations here, and, um, and I'll, I'll, uh, let, let's read them together, and, and we, can, we can think about what they mean. Washington once was quoted by, um, by a, uh, someone who was visiting Mount Vernon as having said, I think you must perceive, this is when, uh, when the visitor raised the subject of slavery, I think you must perceive that there is neither, it's neither a crime nor an absurdity. When we profess as our fundamental principle that liberty is the inalienable right of every man, we do not include madmen or idiots. Liberty in their hands would become a scourge. So the mind of the slave has been educated to perceive what are the obligations of a state of freedom and not confound a man with the brutes. The gift would ensure its abuse. So it's, it's an interesting, it's a striking passage, and it always stayed in my head when I, when I came across it. Um, and then there's another passage completely unrelated by, um, by a Frenchman who I'll talk about in a moment, named uh, Condorcet, who writes um, in a published, uh, published text, if, if a man is unable to exercise his rights and he will use them to abuse others or will use them to his own prejudice, then society can consider him as having lost his rights. It is thus that some natural rights are denied to children of a young age or deprived to imbeciles or madmen. By the same token, if by their education the slaves of the European colonies become incapable of carrying out their functions as free men, one can treat them as men whom misfortune or sickness has deprived, uh, have deprived of a part of their faculties. Um, these are actually really interesting quotes. I mean, they, they get actually at the heart of, of problems in liberal political theory and liberal political practice. But for, for our purposes, what, what um, fascinates me and what I think makes them interesting is how uh, remarkably similar these two quotations are. Um, strikingly similar for two people who, who, who never met. Both Washington and Condorcet believe that, that emancipation can be justifiably delayed by concerns over public safety. Both of them believe that people who are unprepared for liberty might abuse, abuse it. Both of them believe that rights can be at least temporarily deprived until people have been educated into the proper habits. And both of them exalt, invoke the example of madmen or idiots or imbeciles to support their case. So uh, Condorcet was, was an influential mathematician and, and philosopher. He'd been an early and strong proponent of abolition. His ideas became very influential in the 1780s and the 1790s and shaped the outlook of a generation of French and foreign intellectuals who lived in, in Paris. His reflections, uh, his, his work on slavery would inspire Jefferson and Lafayette, among many other figures. Condorcet was opposed to slavery but, um, and this is an important point, he, he argued that in, in, in the interest of public order, abolition could be delayed. He proposed a, a, a long delayed um, abolition scheme that according to some readers would have lasted over 100 years. Um, and, and this is actually the same thing that, that Washington believed. Actually, um, in many ways, in, in most ways, Gondorf's abolitionist writings mirror Washington's thinking about abolition in the way that he articulated it in his will, which is the most detailed sort of abolition document that we have. So then the question becomes, how do we explain these similarities? These are striking parallels, but what's, what might the connection be? So we have, you know, the easiest explanation, of course, would be that Washington read Gondolf's writings and, and, and thought about them. Now, we have no evidence that he did. They weren't in the bound pamphlet. There's no, there's no trace of Washington having ever read them, so he, he may have. 
or he may not have. But in a sense, um, I think it doesn't really matter whether he read Condorcet or not, whether he understood, whether he had engaged with that pamphlet or not. What matters um, is the ways that they both uh, shared and participated in this transatlantic dialogue about slavery and freedom. They were both participants in this vast conversation taking place across the Atlantic world, um, which, which bore largely similar uh, views and similar ideas. So who was involved in this dialogue? How did these ideas circulate? Well, one important person, uh, and one way that these ideas very likely circulated, was Lafayette, who was an, um, an integral participant in this transatlantic dialogue. And I'm very thrilled to be speaking in this room where we have a bust of Washington and a bust of Lafayette right here side by side. So we're getting lots of great visuals here um, all over the place. Lafayette and Condorcet were good friends. Both were members of the Société des Amis des Noirs, a French abolitionist society that, that was started in the 1780s. And it was actually Lafayette who recruited Condorcet into the society. Condorcet's writings on, on, on slavery had a, had a huge influence on Lafayette's thinking. Condorcet was even involved in Lafayette's plan to buy a, a plantation in French Guiana in 1786 and to embark on an abolitionic, abolitionist experiment there. Lafayette had hoped to recruit Washington into this experiment. He wrote Washington about it, and they talked about it when Lafayette visited Mount Vernon. And so it's likely uh, that, that Lafayette and Washington talked about, uh, about Condorcet's ideas when Lafayette was visiting and, and talking about this same, um, this same uh, experiment in, in French Guiana. Another participant in this dialogue was Thomas Clarkson. He was a major British abolitionist, in, um, uh, and Clarkson was the author, author, actually, of one of the six pamphlets in Washington's bound volume. Clarkson collaborated closely with Lafayette when he spent six months in Paris. He helped to organize the Société des Amis des Noirs as an as a offshoot of the, of the British um, Committee on the Abolition of the Slave Trade. The two uh, continued a friendship uh, and a correspondence throughout their lives. While he was in Paris, Clarkson had gotten to know all the major figures in, French, in the French abolitionist movement, including the French journalist, politician, and abolitionist Brissot de Warville, who I'll talk about in a minute, who also authored a pamphlet in Washington's uh, bound volume on slavery. Thomas Jefferson was another participant in this transatlantic conversation. Jefferson had been good friends with Lafayette uh, when he lived in Paris. Uh, he and Lafayette and Condorcet would, would regularly dine together. Jefferson was intimately familiar with Condorcet's views on slavery. In fact, he was so taken with Condorcet's writings on slavery that he translated the book's first 15 pages into English. Jefferson, while he was in Paris, refused uh, coyly, as was his, as was his style, to, to join the Société des Amis des Noirs. He was asked uh, to do so by his friends. He sent a letter to the society insisting, as he wrote, that nobody wishes more ardently to see an abolition not only of the trade, but of the condition of slavery. And he sent his secretary, William Short, to the society's meetings. Short was, was actually among the most faithful uh, attendees of the, of the society's meetings, and he probably kept Jefferson apprised of the activities going on in these anti-slavery circles in Paris in the 1780s. Maybe Washington and Jefferson shared thoughts about slavery at some point during their long association together, uh, social and political. Another possibility is uh, Philip Matze, an Italian uh, physician who served as Virginia's agent abroad during the war. He lived in Virginia on, a, on an estate adjoining Monticello. He was close friends with Jefferson. Matze was also intimately familiar with Condorcet's writings on slavery. He excerpted large parts of Condorcet's writing on slavery in, um, in his own 1788 book on the United States. Washington and Matze knew each other. Washington had once purchased a 50-pound share in an agricultural project of Matze's. 
1785, while Matze was in the United States gathering information for his book on the United States, he visited Mount Vernon on at least one, one occasion where he interviewed George Washington. They had breakfast together, and, and they, we'll never know, but they may well have shared some thoughts about slavery. Maybe Hamilton was Washington's introduction to these transatlantic abolitionist circles. Hamilton of recent hip-hop fame. Hamilton had, had been an early opponent of slavery from the time of the Revolution. During the war, he served as Washington's liaison to the French officer corps, and he maintained close friendships with several of the former French officers uh, who'd fought in the, in the war, including Lafayette. In fact, it was Lafayette who introduced Hamilton to Brissot, who I already mentioned, who was the author of one of the tracks in Washington's volume, when Brissot came to the United States. This letter will be delivered to you by Monsieur de Warville. Uh, Lafayette wrote Hamilton in 1788. He will explain to you what has been done in this country, that is to France, uh, respecting the Negro trade and slavery. So Hamilton was part of the same transatlantic dialogue, the same transatlantic conversation about slavery and about abolition. And he also may have shared some thoughts with Washington. This was, a, like Lafayette, a father figure who'd taken Hamilton into his affections as an adopted son, um, much as he had with Lafayette, and on whom Washington was more dependent uh, on political advice than on any other figure. Or maybe it was Brissot himself, who was a founder of the French Abolitionist Society, uh, of which Condorcet and Lafayette were also members. Brissot was an honorary and corresponding member of the British Society for the Abolition of the Slave Trade. When he came to the United States in 1788, he met with Hamilton, as we just saw. He also delivered an address to the Pennsylvania Abolition Society, uh, an address that was later published and that was included in Washington's bound volume. He visited Mount Vernon in 1788, armed with a letter of introduction from Lafayette, which ensured a warm welcome from Washington. No doubt it was during that visit that Brissot delivered the pamphlet that ended up in Washington's bound volume uh, on slavery, and he also delivered Clarkson's pamphlet at the same time. Brissot actually spent two days at Mount Vernon, Washington always complained about how many guests he was getting, uh, where he and Washington spoke uh, about slavery. Brissot presumpt presumptuously, if you ask me, told Washington that he thought an abolitionist society should be created in Virginia, and that it, he thought Washington should uh, preside over that. Uh, Washington, um, I'm sure, didn't appreciate that advice. But the point of all this is to, is to recreate the contours. It's less to know who said what, because these are things we'll never know, right? We can never recapture the ways, the ways, what people said at conversations that weren't written down. We can never capture ideas that flitted through people's minds at one time or another. The point of all this is, is, is to reshape the contours of what, of what I've been calling a, a transatlantic dialogue about slavery and abolition. I tried to um, extend my little visuals here to, to, um, to diagram what that, what that dialogue, this sort of network that I've been covering here, uh, would have looked like. Um, this, this network would have included just, not just the figures that I've been talking about, but, but a whole uh, host of others who participated in these abolitionist society, the printers who published these volumes and who, and who uh, shared these volumes, who sent these volumes uh, uh, all across the Atlantic world, um, and who corresponded with each other to publish these volumes, the, the societies that organized um, the, on, on each other's models, the British society followed by the French society and the, the Pennsylvania Abolition Society, uh, with these close correspondence and these close networks of travelers moving across the ocean. And, and this whole um, dialogue has, has become uh, be, or became uh, apparent from the volume, this single volume in Washington's library, this network of people and of texts and of ideas moving across the Atlantic world, influencing readers all over the place, people like George Washington. So we started with a set of books. We started with physical copies sitting 
in a, in a dusty library in Beacon Hill. Although there's, there's no dust in this library, rest assured. Um, and it took us on an adventure far away from Boston. It took us all the way across the Atlantic. Transatlantic dialogue taking place in Mount Vernon in Philadelphia, as well as in salons in Paris and drawing rooms in London and printer shops all across Europe. All of this, I think, um, helps to kind of decenter our national story, the way we often frame it about slavery and freedom. It helps us to see the so-called problem of slavery as, as in the ways that I think Washington did, less as a national problem than as a problem of, of international dimensions. And all of that was made possible through the, the various clues that, that we were able to discover, um, thanks to the books that remain still preserved, uh, still, still printed, um, still preserved, not in virtual form, but, um, but in actual physical copies and, and that are lovingly preserved in, in libraries just like this one. So thank you very much, and, and I'm happy to uh, take questions about that.